Chapter Seven of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Seven: How the Three Comrades Journeyed Through the Woodlands. At early dawn the country inn was all alive, for it was rare indeed that an hour of daylight would be wasted at a time when lighting was so scarce and dear. Indeed, early as it was when Dame Eliza began to stir, it seemed that others could be earlier still, for the door was ajar, and the learned student of Cambridge had taken himself off with a mind which was too intent upon the high things of antiquity to stoop to consider the fourpence which he owed for bed and board. It was the shrill outcry of the landlady when she found her loss, and the clucking of the hens which had streamed in through the open door that first broke in upon the slumbers of the tired wayfarers. Once afoot, it was not long before the company began to disperse. A sleek mule with red trappings was brought round from some neighbouring shed for the physician, and he ambled away with much dignity upon his road to Southampton. The tooth-drawer, the glee-man called for a cup of small ale apiece, and started off together for Ringwood Fair, the old jongleur looking very yellow in the eye, and swollen in the face after his overnight potations. The archer, however, who had drunk more than any man in the room, was as merry as a grig, and having kissed the matron, and chased the maid up the ladder once more, he went out to the brook, and came back with the water dripping from his face and hair. "'Hola, my man of peace!' he cried to Alan. "'Whither are you bent this morning?' "'To Minstead,' quoth he. "'My brother Simon Edrickson is Sockman there, "'and I go to bide with him for a while. "'I prithee, let me have my score, good dame.' "'Score, indeed!' cried she, "'standing with upraised hands in front of the panel "'on which Alan had worked the night before. "'Say, rather, what it is that I owe thee, good youth. "'Aye, this is indeed a pied Merlin.' with a leveret under its claws, as I am a living woman. By the rood of Waltham, but thy touch is deft and dainty. And see the red eye of it, cried the maid. Aye, and the open beak. And the ruffled wing, added Hordle John. By my hilt, cried the archer, it is indeed the very bird itself. The young clerk flushed with pleasure at this chorus of praise, rude and indiscriminate indeed, and yet so much heartier, and less grudging than any which he had ever heard from the critical brother Jerome or the short-spoken abbot. There was, it would seem, great kindness, as well as great wickedness in this world of which he had heard so little that was good. His hostess would hear nothing of his paying either for bed or for board, while the archer and Hordle John placed a hand upon either shoulder and led him off to the board, where some smoking fish, a dish of spinach, and a jug of milk, were laid out for their breakfast. "'I should not be surprised to learn, mon camarade,' said the soldier, as he heaped a slice of fish upon Alan's trencher of bread, "'that you could read written things, since you are so ready with your brushes and pigments. "'It would be a shame to the good brothers of Bewley if I could not,' he answered, "'seeing that I have been their clerk this ten years back.' The bowman looked at him with great respect. "'Think of that,' said he. "'and you with not a hair to your face, and a skin like a girl. 
I can shoot three hundred and fifty paces with my little popper there, and four hundred and twenty with the great war-bow, yet I can make nothing of this, nor read my own name if you were to set Sam Aylward up against me. In the whole company there was only one man who could read, and he fell down a well at the taking of Ventador, which proves that the thing is not suited to a soldier, though most needful to a clerk. I can make some show at it said Big John, though I was scarce long enough among the monks to catch the whole trick of it. "'Here, then, is something to try upon,' quoth the archer, pulling a square of parchment from the inside of his tunic. It was tied securely with a broad band of purple silk, and firmly sealed at either end with a large red seal. John pored long and earnestly over the inscription upon the back, with his brows bent as one who bears up against great mental strain. Mm. "'Not having read much of late,' he said, "'I am loath to say too much about what this may be. "'Some may say one thing, and some another, "'just as one bowman loves the yew, "'and a second will not shoot save with the ash. "'To me, by the length and look of it, "'I should judge this to be a verse from one of the psalms.' "'The bowman shook his head. "'It is scarce likely,' he said, "'that Sir Claude Latour should send me all the way across seas "'with naught more weighty than a psalm-verse.' Mm, "'You have clean overshot the butts this time, mon camarade. "'Give it to the little one. "'I will wager my feather bed that he makes more sense of it.' "'Why, it is written in the French tongue,' said Alan, "'and in a right clerkly hand. "'This is how it runs. "'A le mou puissant et mou honorable chevalier Sir Nigel Loring de Christchurch, "'de son très fidèle ami Sir Claude Latour, "'capitaine de la Compagnie Blanche, Châtelain de Biscard, Grand Seigneur de Montchâteau, Vavasseur de le renomme Gaston, Comte de Foix, tenant les droits de la haute justice de la milieu et de la basse, which signifies in our speech, to the very powerful and very honourable knight, Sir Nigel Loring of Christchurch, from his very faithful friend, Sir Claude Latour, Captain of the White Company, Chatelaine of Biscar, Grand Lord of Montchâteau, and vassal to the renowned Gaston, Comte de Foix, who holds the rights of the high justice, the middle, and the low. "'Look at that now!' cried the bowman in triumph. "'That is just what he would have said.' "'I can see now that it is even so,' said John, examining the parchment again, "'though I scarce understand this high, middle, and low.' "'By my hilt you would understand it if you were Jacques Bonhomme. "'The low justice means that you may fleece him, "'and the middle that you may torture him, "'and the high that you may slay him.' "'That's about the truth of it. "'But this is the letter which I am to take, "'and since the platter is clean, "'it is time that we trussed up and were afoot. "'You come with me, mon gros Jean. "'And as to you, little one, "'where did you say you journeyed?' Uh, "'To Minstead. "'Ah, yes, I know this forest country well, "'though I was born myself in the hundred of Easebourne, "'in the rape of Chichester, "'hard by the village of Midhurst. "'Yet I have not a word to say against the Hampton men.' for there are no better comrades or truer archers in the whole company than some who learn to loose the string in these very parts we shall travel round with you to minstead lad seeing that it is little out of our way i am ready said alan right pleased at the thought of such company upon the road so am not i i must store my plunder at this inn since the hostess is an honest woman hola ma chérie i wish to leave you my gold-work my velvet my silk my feather-bed my incense-boat my ewer my naping-linen all the rest of it 
I take only the money in a linen bag, and the box of rose-coloured sugar, which is a gift from my captain to the Lady Loring. Wilt guard my treasure for me? I shall put it in the safest loft, good archer. Come when you may, you shall find it ready for you. Now, there is a true friend, cried the bowman, taking her hand. There is a bon ami. English land and English women, say I, and French wine and French plunder. I shall be back anon, mon ange. I am a lonely man, my sweeting, and I must settle some day when the wars are over and done. Mayhap you and I— Ah, méchante, méchante! There is la petite peeping from behind the door. Mm. Now, John, the sun is over the trees. You must be brisker than this when the bugleman blows bows and bills. I have been waiting this time back, said Hordle John gruffly. Then we must be off. Adieu, ma vie. The two livres shall settle this score, and buy some ribbons against the next commesse. And do not forget Sam Aylward, for his heart shall ever be thine alone, and thine, ma petite. So, marchons, and may St. Julian grant us good quarters elsewhere. The sun had risen over Ashurst and Denny Woods, and was shining brightly, though the eastern wind had a sharp flavour to it, and the leaves were still flickering thickly from the trees. In the high street of Lyndhurst, the wayfarers had to pick their way, for the little town was crowded with the guardsmen, grooms, and yeomen prickers who were attached to the king's hunt. The king himself was staying at Castle Malwood, but several of his suite had been compelled to seek such quarters as they might find in the wooden or wattle and daub cottages of the village. Here and there a small escutcheon, peeping from a glassless window, marked the knight's lodging of a knight or baron. These coats of arms could be read where a scroll would be meaningless, and the bowman, like most men of his age, was well versed in the common symbols of heraldry. "'There is the Saracen's head of Sir Bernard Brocas,' quoth he. "'I saw him last at the ruffle at Poitiers some ten years back, where he bore himself like a man. "'He is the master of the king's horse, and can sing a right jovial stave, "'though in that he cannot come nigh to Sir John Chandos, who is first at the board or in the saddle. Three martlets on a field azure. That must be one of the Luttrells. By the crescent upon it, it should be the second son of old Sir Hugh, who had a bolt through his ankle at the intaking of Romorantin, he having rushed into the fray, ere his squire had time to clasp his solerate to his grieve. There too is the hackle, which is the old device of the de Bray's. I have served under Sir Thomas de Bray, who was as jolly as a pie, and a lusty swordsman until he got too fat for his harness. So the archer gossiped as the three wayfarers threaded their way among the stamping horses, the busy grooms, and the knots of pages and squires, who disputed over the merits of their masters, horses, and deer-hounds. As they passed the old church, which stood upon a mound at the left-hand side of the village street, the door was flung open and a stream of worshippers wound down the sloping path, coming from the morning mass, all chattering like a cloud of jays. Alan bent knee and doffed hat at the sight of the open door. But ere he had finished an ave, his comrades were out of sight round the curve in the path, and he had to run to overtake them. "'What?' he said. "'Not one word of prayer before God's own open house. How can he hope for his blessing upon the day?' "'My friend,' said Hordle John, I have prayed so much during the last two months, not only during the day, but at matins, lords, and the like, when I could scarce keep my head upon my shoulders for nodding, that I feel I have somewhat overprayed myself. How can a man have too much religion? cried Alan earnestly. It is the one thing that availeth. 
A man is but a beast, as he lives from day to day, eating and drinking, breathing and sleeping. It is only when he raises himself, and concerns himself with the immortal spirit within him, that he becomes, in the very truth, a man. Bethink ye how sad a thing it would be that the blood of the Redeemer should be spilled to no purpose. Bless the lad, if he doth not blush like any girl, and yet preach like the whole college of cardinals, cried the archer. In truth, I blush that any one so weak and so unworthy as I should try to teach another that which he finds it so passing hard to follow himself. Prettily said, mon garçon. Touching that same slaying of the Redeemer, it was a bad business. A good padre in France read to us from a scroll the whole truth of the matter. The soldiers came upon him in the garden. In truth, these apostles of his may have been holy men, but they were of no great account as men-at-arms. There was one, indeed, Sir Peter, who smote out like a true man, but unless he is belied he did but clip a varlet's ear, which is no very knightly deed. By these ten finger-bones had I been there with Black Simon of Norwich, and but one score picked men of the company, we had held them in play. Could we do no more, we at least filled the false knight Sir Judas so full of English arrows that he would curse the day that ever he came on such an errand. The young clerk smiled at his companion's earnestness. Had he wished help, he said, he could have summoned legions of archangels from heaven, so what need had he of your poor bow and arrow? Besides, bethink you of his own words, that those who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. And how could man die better? asked the archer. If I had my wish, it would be to fall so, not mark you in any mere skirmish of the company, but in a stricken field with the great lion banner waving over us, and the red oriflamme in front, amid the shouting of my fellows and the twanging of the strings. But let it be sword, lance, or bolt that strikes me down, for I should think it shame to die from an iron ball of the fire-drake or bombard, or any such unsoldierly weapon, which is only fitted to scare babes with its foolish noise and smoke. I have heard much even in the quiet cloisters of these new and dreadful engines, quoth Alan. It is said, though I can scarce bring myself to believe it, that they will send a ball twice as far as a bowman can shoot his shaft, and with such force as to break through armour of proof. True enough, my lad, but while the armourer is thrusting in his devil's dust, and dropping his ball and lighting his flambeau, I can very easily lose six shafts, or eight maybe, so he hath no great vantage after all. Yet I will not deny that in the intaking of a town it is well to have a good store of bombards. I am told that at Calais they made dints in the wall that a man might put his head into. But surely, comrades, some one who is grievously hurt hath passed along this road before us. All along the woodland track there did indeed run a scattered straggling trail of blood-marks, sometimes in single drops, and in other places in broad, ruddy gouts, smudged over the dead leaves or crimsoning the white flintstones. "'It must be a stricken deer,' said John. "'Nay, I am woodman enough to see that no deer hath passed this way this morning, and yet the blood is fresh.' "'But hark to the sound!' They stood listening, all three with sidelong heads. Through the silence of the great forest there came a swishing, whistling sound, mingled with the most dolorous groans, and the voice of a man raised in a high, quavering kind of song. The comrades hurried onwards eagerly, and topping the brow of a small rising, they saw upon the other side 
the source from which these strange noises arose. A tall man, much stooped in the shoulders, was walking slowly with bended head and clasped hands in the centre of the path. He was dressed from head to foot in a long white linen cloth, and a high white cap with a red cross printed upon it. His gown was turned back from his shoulders, and the flesh there was a sight to make a man wince, for it was all beaten to a pulp, and the blood was soaking into his gown and trickling down upon the ground. Behind him walked a smaller man, with his hair touched with grey, who was clad in the same white garb. He intoned a long, whining rhyme in the French tongue, and at the end of every line he raised a thick cord, all jagged with pellets of lead, and smote his companion across the shoulders until the blood spurted again. Even as the three wayfarers stared, however, there was a sudden change, for the smaller man, having finished his song, loosened his own gown and handed the scourge to the other, who took up the stave once more and lashed his companion with all the strength of his bare and sinewy arm. So alternately beating and beaten, they made their dolorous way through the beautiful woods and under the amber arches of the fading beech-trees, where the calm strength and majesty of nature might serve to rebuke the foolish energies and misspent strivings of mankind. Such a spectacle was new to Hordle John or to Alan Edrickson, but the archer treated it lightly, as a common matter enough. "'Ah, oh, these are the beating friars, otherwise called the flagellants,' quoth he. "'I marvel that you should have come upon none of them before, for across the water they are as common as gallybaggers. I have heard that there are no English among them, but they are from France, Italy, and Bohemia. En avant, mes camarades, that we might have speech with them. As they came up to them, Alan could hear the doleful dirge which the beater was chanting, bringing down his heavy whip at the end of each line, while the groans of the sufferer formed a sort of dismal chorus. It was in old French, and ran somewhat in this way. Or avant, entre nous tous frères, battons nos charognes bien forts. En remembrant la grande misère de Dieu et sa pitieuse mort, qui fut pris en la jante d'amère, et vendu et très à tort, et bastu sa chair, vierge et d'air, au nom de ce bâton plus fort. Then at the end of the verse the scourge changed hands, and the chanting began anew. Truly, holy fathers, said the archer in French as they came abreast of them, you have beaten enough for to-day. The road is all spotted like a shambles at Martinmas. Why should you mishandle yourselves thus? C'est pour vos pêches, pour vos pêches, they droned, looking at the travellers with sad, lacklustre eyes, and then bent to their bloody work once more, without heed to the prayers and persuasions which were addressed to them. Finding all remonstrance useless, the three comrades hastened on their way, leaving these strange travellers to their dreary task. Mort Dieu, cried the bowman, there is a bucket full or more of my blood over in France, but it was all spilled in hot fight, and I should think twice before I drew it drop by drop as these friars are doing. By my hilt, our young one here is as white as a Picardy cheese. What is amiss then, mon cher? It is nothing, Alan answered. My life has been too quiet. I am not used to such sights. Ma foi, the other cried, I have never yet seen a man who is so stout of speech and yet so weak of heart. Not so, friend, quoth Big John. It is not weakness of heart, for I know the lad well. 
His heart is as good as thine or mine, but he hath more in his pate than ever you will carry under that tin pot of thine, and as a consequence he can see further into things, so that they weigh upon him more. Surely to any man it is a sad sight, said Alan, to see these holy men, who have done no sin themselves, suffering so for the sins of others. Saints are they, if in this age any may merit so high a name. I count them not a fly, cried Hordle John, for who is the better for all their whipping and yowling? They're like the other friars, I trow, when all's done. Let them leave their backs alone, and beat the pride out of their hearts. By the three kings, there is sooth in what you say, remarked the archer. Besides, methinks if I were le bon Dieu, it would bring me little joy to see a poor devil cutting the flesh off his bones. And I should think that he had but a small opinion of me, that he should hope to please me by such provost martial work. No, by my hilt, I should look with a more loving eye upon a jolly archer, who never harmed a fallen foe, and never feared a hale one. "'Doubtless you mean no sin,' said Alan. "'If your words are wild, it is not for me to judge them. "'Can you not see that there are other foes in this world besides Frenchmen, "'and as much glory to be gained in conquering them? "'Would it not be a proud day for knight or squire "'if he could overthrow seven adversaries in the lists? "'Yet here are we in the lists of life, "'and there come the seven black champions against us, "'Sir Pride, Sir Covetousness, Sir Lust, Sir Anger, Sir Gluttony, Sir Envy, and Sir Sloth. Let a man lay those seven low, and he shall have the prize of the day, from the hands of the fairest queen of beauty, even from the virgin mother herself. It is for this that these men mortify their flesh, and to set us an example who would pamper ourselves overmuch. I say again that they are God's own saints, and I bow my head to them. And so you shall, mon petit, replied the archer. I have not heard a man speak better since old Dom Bertrand died, who was at one time chaplain to the White Company. He was a very valiant man, but at the Battle of Brignier he was spitted through the body by a Hino man-at-arms. For this we had an excommunication read against the man, when next we saw our Holy Father at Avignon. But we had not his name, and knew nothing of him, save that he rode a dapple-grey Roussin. I have feared sometimes that the blight may have settled upon the wrong man." "'Your company has been, then, to bow knee before our holy father, the Pope Urban, the prop and centre of Christendom?' asked Alan, much interested. "'Perchance you have yourself set eyes upon his august face.' "'Twice I saw him,' said the archer. "'He was a, a lean little rat of a man, with a scab upon his chin. The first time we had five thousand crowns out of him, though he made much ado about it. The second time we asked ten thousand but it was three days before we could come to terms, and I am of the opinion myself that we might have done better by plundering the palace. His chamberlain and cardinals came forth, as I remember, to ask whether we would take seven thousand crowns with his blessing and a plenary absolution, or the ten thousand with his solemn ban by bell, book, and candle. We were all of one mind that it was best to have the ten thousand with the curse, but in some way they prevailed upon Sir John so that we were blessed and shriven against our will. Perchance it is as well, for the company were in need of it about that time. The pious Alan was deeply shocked by this reminiscence. Involuntarily he glanced up and around, to see if there were any trace of those opportune levin-flashes and thunderbolts, which, in the Acta Sanctorum, were wont so often to cut short the loose talk of the scoffer. The autumn sun streamed down as brightly as ever 
and the peaceful red path still wound in front of them through the rustling yellow-tinted forest. Nature seemed to be too busy with her own concerns to heed the dignity of an outraged pontiff. Yet he felt a sense of weight and reproach within his breast, as though he had sinned himself in giving ear to such words. The teachings of twenty years cried out against such license. It was not until he had thrown himself down before one of the many wayside crosses, and had prayed from his heart both for the archer and for himself, that the dark cloud rolled back again from his spirit. End of chapter 7